I have always been viscerally uncomfortable in crowds, especially in crowds that are yelling and chanting, other than when I was a cheerleader in middle school. <laughs> I have felt uneasy at rallies and protests. And yet time and time again, I show up because I know that presence matters when people are trying to build something. Celebrating Palm Sunday in church may be the only time I wholeheartedly engage in a crowd's activity. Perhaps because the church has ritualized the waving of palms and the participation in a parade, and perhaps because the chants have become songs. The message is more on point, and therefore I am more comfortable. Crowds can get messy, sometimes be volatile. Even when they behave peacefully, they are passionate, and passions are differently motivated and get expressed in different ways with different words. It is an, an uncommon experience for me to go to a rally so that I can be in solidarity with others, only to leave feeling so disturbed by the actual things I hear people yell and speakers say that I feel the need to distance myself from some of the content and tone. Each Palm Sunday, I am reminded that as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowd of people who hailed Jesus with hosannas, with either desperate or hopeful pleas to be saved, had different political ideas about who Jesus was and how he would be able to save them. There were many different political alternatives available to them and to Jesus. And these different alternatives vied with one another. The Jews of Jesus' day and Jesus himself faced choices about how to channel their passion and their power. The choice Jesus made is central to the church. No Christian can avoid wrestling with it. From the start, it is helpful to acknowledge clearly that Christianity is and always has been in the business of politics, broadly conceived. By politics, I do not mean a subject for opinionated and argumentative people on how government should run. Instead, by politics, I mean the negotiation of persons' passions and interests that pays respect to different kinds of power. Since every person has a passion and some degree of power, and since everyone has something to gain or lose from a change in the status quo, politics is a part of nearly every aspect of life. Let me try to describe some of the political alternatives that were available in Jesus' day. First, the only available option for those who aspired to gain wealth and have at their disposal military-backed power was to collaborate with Rome. The Roman Empire maintained control over its far-flung provinces by giving local authorities wealth, prestige, and power in exchange for their loyalty to Rome. The Jewish authorities in Jerusalem were no exception. Pontius Pilate gained their loyalty by giving them the wealth 
prestige, and power they desired. The Jews of Jesus' day who could read and write had further options. They could try to reform Judaism, much like the story told by the prophets explaining that Israel suffered exile as a result of departing from God's ways. The most likely way for literate Jews in Jesus' time to make sense of their situation was to see Roman domination as something the Jews had brought upon themselves. The appropriate response was therefore to return Jews to a more holy way of life in adherence to all the holiness and purity codes. Vying to become popular arbiters of what constituted purity, the Sadducees and Pharisees tried to concentrate their power into their own hands. For the Essenes, exercising purity necessitated withdrawal into a rigorously holy community. A further political option was that of violent restoration. It was universally assumed that the golden era lay in the past during the rule of King David. The zealots of Jesus' day were as angry with the Jerusalem authorities as they were with Roman rule. Many were peasants who were exasperated having to pay tithes to priests who were themselves landowners. The zealots wanted, to change in, wanted a change in government and were willing to use martyrdom and violence against their opponents for this purpose. These were just some of the different political alternatives for Jews in Jesus' day to channel their passion and their power. And if we want to understand the choice Jesus offered, we have to recognize that he established a new form of life that did not conform with these other political alternatives. While Jesus called for unconditional obedience, even to the point of self-sacrifice, Jesus renounced violence and the use of force. He went so far as to command us to love not only God and our neighbor, but even the stranger and our enemy. Whereas the Sadducees, Pharisees, and Essenes were preoccupied with maintaining purity and keeping impurity at bay, Jesus constantly overturned their reigning notions about impurity. For him, holiness, not impurity, was infectious. And when it came to the dominant values of wealth, prestige, and power upon which the Roman system of patronage re relied, Jesus, having no use for any of it, was a real threat to Rome. As one who loosened the hold of these on the people's imagination, Jesus would inevitably have to be put to death. This, however, is not the whole story. The political alternative that Jesus offers is not simply that of the cross. Jesus' true power and passion consists in the way Jesus lived a passionate life beyond the fear of death. Without the fear of death, he was able to renounce any kind of power that presupposed a world of scarcity, a world in which there would not be enough power, wealth, and prestige. To live passionately without the fear of death, can you imagine what difference that would make in your life 
in the decisions you make, in the way you work for social change, what kind of world you would be willing to live, work, and die for. Some of you may be familiar with the work of Ibu Patel. He, was, he is founder of Interfaith America. For nearly three decades, Ibu Patel has convened and trained young adult interfaith leaders, all the while studying and writing about what it takes to build a democracy that is truly interfaith. In 2022, he published a new book entitled, We Need to Build, Field Notes for Diverse Democracy. The key word is build, because our current approach to social change has been one of dismantling systems and institutions. Growing up as a Muslim in a northern suburb of Chicago, Ibu remembers that the predominant story of his childhood was that he and his family were very fortunate. Fortunate for living in a country with so much opportunity. Fortunate for being able to go to good schools. Fortunate for being able to practice their Muslim faith in a pluralistic society. What Ibu also remembers is the discrimination and prejudice he experienced, which he never discussed at home or school. He wasn't debilitated by it, but he definitely felt it. Once he got to college in 1993, he was exposed for the first time to terms like white supremacy and institutionalized racism. These gave him a narrative framework into which he could finally put all those experiences that he had collected over his lifetime. And he raged. That rage was also encouraged. It was encouraged by the people who initiated him into social change. He raged for about two years, he says. And during that time, he totally forgot that other equally true story that he had been taught and with which he had grown up, that story that he had lived a very fortunate life. His initiation into social change had effectively required him to give himself a single story, and not just that, but also the worst possible story, the victim story. He was constantly on the lookout for the worst story. At that point in his life, he thought his job was to call out everything you were doing wrong as loudly and self-righteously as he could, and only then would society make strides toward becoming a new paradise. Over time, he realized the lunacy of this notion. Why was I convinced that a useful thing to do is only to tell the worst possible story? It's simply not a true story. It's a dystopian falsehood. In what world, he asks, do we think that if we dismantle systems, paradise will descend? Chaos happens. Be really careful ripping the pilot out of the cockpit if you don't know how to fly the plane. More positively, he writes, defeat the things you do not love by building the things you do. Jesus spent his life 
teaching and showing us what it takes to build the kingdom of God. It sounded and felt so good that his followers began to imagine God's kingdom in reality. They saw in him, in the way he lived his life, so passionately beyond any fear of death, what could be possible for the world. It has always been important that we tell the full story of Jesus, not just that he was unjustly crucified and killed, not just the worst possible story, a victim story, but also that Jesus passionately lived without any fear of death and that he rose again from the dead. Sometimes I worry that we might overemphasize one part of Jesus' story over another. I've seen it happen in Confirmand's statements of faith. Because the glorious resurrection from the dead can be harder for us to believe, we might focus more on the quite believable crucifixion of Christ. There's a danger, though, in taking one part of our story, the worst part, and turning it into our primary identity. Ibu tells a story about what he and his wife have observed as parents. They live now on the north side of Chicago, and there are well-meaning people in their children's lives who are constantly asking their kids how they feel oppressed as Muslims. What these people know about Islam is Islamophobia. What they want his kids to narrate is a story of marginalization and oppression. The problem is, he says, Islam has actual content. And virtually the last thing that Islam does is to encourage Muslims to think of themselves as victims. This ethos of encouraging people who are not white heterosexual males to tell all the worst things that have happened to them because of their identity, and then to let that worst story define their identity, it is wrongheaded because it is incomplete. At this moment in our history of social change, it is really important that we tell not only the worst stories, the stories that make us rightly angry, but also the other stories, stories of gratitude, appreciation, connection, and contribution, because it's not enough to dismantle society. We have to know how to build society and be responsible for society. The stories we tell, what we leave out and what we include, matter. They matter not just to connect our past to the present, but also to give us a future with hope. As we head into Holy Week, the story of Jesus' passion and power does just that. It makes it possible for us to live passionately beyond any fear of death for a kingdom without end.